And welcome, everybody. I hope you had a wonderful high holiday season. This is Jake Novak. This is Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're with you here on Monday, October 8th, 2018, the new Jewish year as well. I know we had a lot of weeks off because of the Chagim. I hope you enjoyed them. I hope you didn't get a little tired of them. Let's be honest, some of us get that way. It's okay to say it, I think, as long as you don't uh, forget to celebrate them. Um, and wow, we've had, it's one of those things where I could have had a few of these weeks off and we could have said here on the Novak Now Show, there's 10 stories I need to get to. Here are the, all the stories that have happened in the last four weeks or so since I last had a broadcast. Let me go over all of them. Don't have to do that this time because there was really one dominant story. So obviously one dominant story over the last several weeks. And that, of course, was this incredibly long, bitter, and strong confirmation battle for now Supreme Court Justice. Officially, by the way, their titles, unless you're the Chief Justice, your official title is Associate Justice to the Supreme Court. Now, Associate Justice to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, confirmed yesterday in the United States Senate after a confirmation process that got super ugly, a confirmation process that had, I think, a bigger effect on this country than people expected. And uh, I'm going to go through what I think are really some of the most important points, not only for people who are following American politics, but as Jews. There are some interesting parallels to Jewish history and to certain lessons in the Tanakh, I think. I'm, you know, as you know, I'm Jake Novak. I am not a rabbi, nor do I play one on the radio or on TV. So this is more of a Jewish history type thing for me, but based in some of the biblical literature uh, I'm going to get to that as well, because there are some interesting, interesting lessons that have been taught before. For those of us who follow history, we all know that old saying, uh, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. I don't think it has to be that fatalistic. I just find it interesting when we see parallels, and we saw that. So let me get to the first part of what I think is really the big story to me, the big takeaway, the big final takeaway of this Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. The first big takeaway is for everyone out there who got into legal discussions this last few weeks, who got into arguments about the balance of the court, who felt that that was the most important thing, let me not belittle you here. You are right. These are big issues. These are big, important issues. But from the point of view of this country, the United States, let's not get overly dramatic about the importance to everyday life for people, because honestly, we know that the American people aren't so great when it comes to literacy about the court. If you don't believe me, go online and look at some of the latest polls and latest surveys and latest man on the street videos. There have been quite a few of them over the last couple of years where people go out and they ask people, hey, can you name even one Supreme Court justice? And the amount of people who can name even one justice, you know, again, associate or chief justice in the Supreme Court is extremely low, embarrassingly low. I would say it's a, it's a giveaway, definitely, that most Americans don't know that there are nine justices on the Supreme Court. The idea that the massive majority of this country that didn't even know the name of one justice on the Supreme Court suddenly became 100% engaged in the legal aspects of this is ludicrous. It's not true. Okay? Doesn't mean that it isn't important. Like I said, a Supreme Court spot is important. It's important for, for legal and political and cultural reasons in this country. But as far as the way a person's going to react, either positively or negatively, to the end of this story, to Brett Kavanaugh being put onto the court and getting all crazy and excited about it one way or the other, don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that gal, okay? It's just not that way. Um, most of us will not have our lives changed 
in a real demonstrable way because of this. So I, I want to make sure everyone understands that. Again, we're dealing with a country where the overwhelming majority of the people could not name even one justice on the Supreme Court, okay, before this confirmation. So let's let's remember that. Second, but I, I do think that the biggest takeaway from this Kavanaugh battle has been very, very obvious to me, and I was waiting for this to happen, but to me, this is an absolute turning point in the Donald Trump presidency, and I'll explain why. Not because President Trump did anything differently here. He nominated a solid conservative to the court, just like he did a year ago in Neil Gorsuch. He said a few things he shouldn't have said, just like he did during the nomination of, of Neil Gorsuch and everything else that President Trump has done. He said some things that he should have said, like Donald Trump sometimes does as well. It really hasn't been any change in his behavior. But because the opposition to Brett Kavanaugh became so heated, became so out of bounds, in my opinion, and I don't really think it's much of a subjective opinion. I think it's quite objective the way that the attacks came on Brett Kavanaugh and the intensity with which it came. I do believe now that the number one result of this confirmation battle is a massive turning point in the Trump presidency because it has done something that nothing else seemed to have been able to get it to make happen. And that is we have had a uniting of the right wing in America of the more conservative center right in America behind President Trump in a way that I don't think there's any, almost any other issue that could have done it. And again, it wasn't the issue. Supreme Court is just not that daily important to most American people's lives. It should be probably more important to them, but I'm just saying from the point of view of their own point is, points of view, American people clearly aren't as engaged with the court as maybe the mainstream media or other people would have us believe. But because they saw the tactics that were used against Kavanaugh, because they saw an uncorroborated series of the most horrific charges leveled against him and taken it for granted as true by so many people on the left and so many elected leaders in the Democratic Party without any proof, and because they saw people, members of Congress, getting shouted down and accosted in elevators and at restaurants and in places of business, those people who were holding out a little bit on Trump, who were just so offended by his behavior, a lot of them came around in the last few weeks to something that most Republican voters came around to during the 2016 primaries, and that is they decided that Donald Trump is the blunt instrument they've needed to push back on a overly radical and now very dangerous Democratic Party and left wing in general. They've decided that this is their blunt instrument. Now, like I said, in 2016, I think most of the Republican voters, after eight years of Obama, after eight years of feeling rightfully or wrongfully, you know, we can talk about whether there were real threats or not on the right wing in America or the middle class in America or the average folks down the middle or the moderate to the right or the religious or all those things. We can argue about that factually. And I think those who say that the right wing in this country, that religious people in this country, that gunners in this country were overly dramatic and overly afraid of Obama without a lot of facts behind them, I think they have a lot of good arguments on their side. I don't think that they're 100 percent right. But I do think they had a lot of good arguments on their side. But that's not the point here. The point I'm trying to make is that they did feel that way. Whether they deserve to feel that way or not is irrelevant. And after eight years of that, they looked at all those Republicans, those 17 or 18 Republicans who ran, and they thought to themselves, there's only one guy in this group who's going to be strong enough to push back against this. We feel marginalized. We're called racists. We're called crazies. And then when we say, hey, that's not fair for you calling us that, then we're told, oh, we didn't really call you that. I mean, we can't even get them to be intellectually honest about the way they attack us. We need a blunt instrument. We need a hammer. 
We need a canon. And no matter how much it stinks, and no matter how much we don't like the way he personally acts, and no matter how much we wouldn't want to be his friend or invite him to our daughter's bat mitzvah, we have to vote for Donald Trump here. And that's the way most clearly, most Republican voters responded during the primaries of 2016. And that's, you know, that was a big humbling lesson for somebody like me. You know, I, I felt like I was a conservative thought, you know, not necessarily thought leader, but someone who was writing a lot of editorials and being on the radio and talking about conservative thought. And I thought to myself, boy, this guy Trump's not for me. But as he started to win some of the primaries and I started to see the response of the voters who felt a certain way, I realized, you know, I'm the marginalized one. I'm the one, me, Jake Novak, I'm the one who's speaking for almost no one now. Boy, and I only wish so many of my colleagues who either never came around to understanding this or still, you know, or, or, or maybe did a lot later than I did. I had came around to this realization at the same time. It was humbling for me. Trump winning primary after primary, and I'm seeing that the candidates that I preferred not even getting, you know, a decent percentage, it, become, it, it, it got to me. Like, wait a minute. I can see now what's going on here. These, these folks out there in the middle of the country are really, really upset. So was I. But I thought, you know, we could win by playing the high ground. Most of these voters don't think that, and they've decided to go with Trump. And I have to respect that. Now, most people, most of the pundits and the experts on both sides of the aisle just didn't do that, for, and, mo and most of them still don't. But now that they've seen the tactics that were used against Brent Ka Brett Kavanaugh, they've decided, you know, <laughs> some of those holdouts, and I think it's really only one or two holdouts left now, some of them have decided, you know what, now I get it. I think the biggest example is a guy named Eric Erickson. He has a very popular Twitter feed, right-wing guy, has been a holdout against Trump for a long time among the right. He just said the other day, I'm voting for Trump in 2020. I see now why we needed him. Because we're seeing people being accosted in the streets. We're seeing a guy like Brett Kavanaugh, who never had an accusation against him even once, immediately taken for granted as a rapist, gang rapist, whatever, without any corroborating evidence, and then leadership. I'm not, again, I'm not talking about like some college kid you know, out on a weekend bender protesting violently. I'm talking about Senate minority leader. I'm talking about a... House minority leader. I'm talking about major leaders in the in the in the in the in the U.S. Senate taking it for granted. All these accusations are true without any corroborating evidence. That's not the America most Americans want to live in, and it certainly isn't the America that most conservatives want to live in. And so, as I say here on Novak Now, this is Jake Novak speaking with you. This is the number one takeaway from this. Again, doesn't mean Trump is going to be for sure reelected. Doesn't mean he's super popular. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the right wing in America, those holdouts who were either not voting for Trump or maybe only voting for him and not wanting to talk about it publicly or hoping that he would step down or cheering on some of these efforts to bring him down. They are now not, there's not enough of them to fill a phone booth now for those of you who remember what a phone booth is. Okay. There's not enough of them anymore. They have now been convinced that Donald Trump is, is the blunt instrument they, that they need. And so now of course we're going to see his poll numbers go up folks. We already are. The Rasmussen poll has him up at 51%. Pop, you know, a job approval, which is really close to his all-time high. His all-time high was 56% a couple of days after the inauguration. So he's back up to 51%, which is about as high as it's been in many, many months. Um, you know, the other polls that come out that, that I think have been faulty for a long time, I think the Rasmussen poll is as close to being correct as possible, uh, is most accurate. But you're going to see him getting breaking 45 and 46 and 47% in Gallup and a few of the other polls out there. I, I tend to add about 10 points to those polls because I think that there's another 10% of Americans who will never say they support Trump who are still happy that Hillary Clinton didn't win. So, And if the election were held again with a Hillary-like candidate, they would vote for Trump again. So, But that's just my theory. A few other people hold it. I get it. 
that not everyone believes that. So I don't think about, listen, Trump hasn't won over the liberals because of this. He hasn't won over the, the, the center left moderates, but center right moderates, a few of them now, more of them coming over to Trump's side. And again, I think that just about the entire conservative voting block in this country, with the one or two exceptions, has now, have now completely come over to Trump because of what happened in this Brett Kavanaugh situation. And again, you know, this is one of those things where you have to sort of make sure you, you can define your debate properly. And I want to talk just for one second about that. For all of you listening who found Dr. Christine Ford's testimony to be credible, in other words, you heard her talk about this attempted, what seemed like to be an attempted rape 36 years ago, and she positively identifies in her own mind Brett Kavanaugh. And a lot of you heard that testimony and you felt like, wow, she's telling the truth. It just sounds like the truth to me. I want to speak to you very clearly about something here, which is, should be obvious, but has, seems to be forgotten. Somebody who speaks convincingly and seems to be truthful, that can be anybody, including an actress or an actor. Now, I'm not saying that Christine Ford is an actor or an actress or was coached. I don't know if she was or not. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is anybody at any time in any situation can sound convincing. It can be done. So what do we do? This is not a rhetorical question. What do we do to make sure that someone who sounds convincing isn't, doesn't get what he or she wants or isn't taken for granted telling the truth just because they're sound convincing? We look for backing up evidence. And there just is no corroborating backing up evidence for anything that Dr. Ford accused Brett Kavanaugh of doing. And we don't want to live in a country, I know I don't, nobody wants to live in a country where that can happen, where someone can be convincing. Listen, you know, I might not love all the politics of Hollywood, but given credit, they have some really incredibly talented actors and directors and movie makers out there who can make anything sound credible. Okay. And again, anybody at any given time, given the right preparation, giving the right emotions can sound credible. Again, I'm not saying that Dr. Ford is some kind of conspiracy liar. I'm just saying that anyone can sound credible in any kind of argument that they make. And so we want corroborating evidence. That's how we get to the bottom of things. Hard evidence, it's objective, that goes beyond what we hear and what we see and feel. Feelings aren't facts. Now, I'm the biggest person to understand that feelings are powerful, and that's why so many people who felt a certain way after they heard Christine Ford speak felt very strongly that she must be telling the truth and we couldn't have, Brad, couldn't have Brad, Brett Kavanaugh on the court. But thankfully, in civilized society, we just don't go by what people say. We try to get some evidence to back it up. And the more important, the more serious the charge, the more the bigger the need for evidence. And we didn't have it in Kavanaugh. We just did it. And for those of you who say we did, they're just, they're just, they're, they're, the facts just don't back you up. I'm sorry. So again, that brings us back to, to Donald Trump. And I've, I've, had, I've discussed Donald Trump on this program here on Novak Now on the Nuffin Siegel Network a number of times. And you can count me in as one of those people, as I said earlier just now, that who just didn't like Trump in the beginning, wanted any other Republican in that group to win the nomination. But after March, around the middle of March, I realized that, you know what, I don't represent the voting blocks of this country. Just because I don't want it doesn't mean that everyone who says something else should be ignored. Okay, you got to have a little humility here. And I'm not saying I'm the most humble guy in the world. Saying I think if you say you're a humble guy, you're kind of defeating the purpose, right? <laughs> so I'm not saying I'm the most humble guy in the world. I'm, I, what I'm saying is I was humble. I felt humble when I realized, wow, I am not representing the mainstream of the party that I thought I was sort of a part of. I mean, I never considered myself really a Republican, like a Republican Party line guy, but a conservative. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't speaking for them in the way that maybe I should have, or at least you know, I just wasn't. 
And then a couple of months later, I realized that he was going to win the election because I could see that Hillary Clinton had massive, massive negative ratings and, and there were all kinds of other things she was doing wrong in her own campaign. She could have won that election with a better managed campaign, I think. But that's neither here nor there now. We're really two years removed from that. But Donald Trump now is the sort of rough tumble general now of a conservative movement in this country that I think, you know, like I'm saying, 95, 96, 97% of conservatives now realize he's the only guy who can do this job now against an increasingly radicalized and violent and frightening left wing in America. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the Twitter feeds and the other stuff that you'll see from the accounts. Of, you know, And I'm not talking about radical folks who are coming from nowhere. I'm talking about members of Congress. I'm talking about blue check people on Twitter who are major journalists who are dropping the F-bombs and, and just yelling and, and screaming, you know, in all caps and with 100 exclamation points. They're proving the point. You know, I mean, it's, it's one, I'm, I know I'm not the only one who says it, but, you know, you really feel like taking a screenshot of every one of those tweets and taking a, you know, a, a video archive of all the hysterics and saying, this is why Trump won and this is why he's going to win again. And I really believe that. I really think that, that this turns most people off it turn, or it turns the swing voters off, whatever you want to call it. And they're just never going to be on the side of this kind of hyperbole and this kind of theatrics. It's just not going to happen. I've said many times, Donald Trump is one of the luckiest men in the history of American politics because no matter how low he goes, no matter how ill-advised some of the things he says are, and there are a lot of them, it appears like there's always a prominent opponent of his who goes lower and says something even dumber. Donald Trump has never tweeted out a, a, a tweet with a bunch of F-bombs on it. Donald Trump has never st stood in a, in a public square and screamed for 15 minutes straight. I mean, come on. He's done a lot of stuff that's just out of the out of bounds and and, and kind of nuts, but nothing like that. And so, given the choice of of of, of one and the other, it, 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 he's a default choice. I mean, he just keeps going up against people who don't seem to understand that you can't act like a wild person or a child and win regularly. And people will say, "Well, that's the way Trump acts." You got a point. <laughs> but when the other person is acting even more wildly then he comes off as the lesser of two evils. Almost every election in history of this country, especially for president, people will say, hey, I chose the lesser of two evils. That's the way it's, I, lo I love when people talk about it, it, you know, the, the election of the, of the moment and say like, well, this time it's the lesser of two evils. Folks, American voters, especially swing voters, don't like politicians. It's always an election of the lesser of two evils, okay? Th that, that's always been the case. So, you know, maybe ex with the exception of George Washington. <laughs> After that, it's the lesser of two evils all the time, especially for swing voters. All right. Now, where does this connect? I said at the beginning here of Novak now it, it, on the Nachum Siegel Network that there was going to be some connection here to Jewish history and some stuff in the, in, the, in the Bible. Donald Trump reminds me in many ways of some of the early stories in the Book of Kings particularly the story of King David, but also it goes a little bit before him too, really starts with the story, this, this trend, which goes on for a good part of the book of Malachim and the book and, and the Tanakh in general, begins with the story of King Shaul, King Saul. And King Saul and King David, and especially King David's two major kind of chiefs of staff, Sar HaSavah, as they say in Hebrew, general of the army, generals of the army. These are four characters who come in succession in the story, in, in the book of Malachim, and Malachim Aleph and Malachim Bet, who all have a similar MO in that they are considered to be great warriors. Saul, David, Avner Ben-Ner, the, the people who, who um, succeed Avner Ben-Ner, they're all great generals and great warriors. 
but they have blood on their hands to the point that King Saul is not really considered to be an ideal choice as a king. King David is considered to be someone who couldn't really build the Holy Temple in Jerusalem because he was too much of a warrior. And then his generals, even though they were expedient at times to win wars for King David, also both of you know, those two major generals in the story, they also kind of have rough ends to them. Their stories end violently because they lived violent lives. And Donald Trump to me is kind of like that guy. In, in, in modern parlance, we, we, we understand he's a rough and tumble person. We understand he speaks nasty. We understand that he plays kind of a game in a rough way. But he gets a certain job done at a time of uncertainty, at a time of violent, you know, violent acts in this country, heightened speech between one side and the other, which is really going out of bounds. And I think a lot of people decide, again, I don't want to have dinner with this guy. I don't want him at my, bat, my daughter's bat mitzvah. I really don't know if I would be able to sit down and talk with him for, for you know, a really long time. But I'm afraid of the left in America. I'm afraid of a Democratic Party in America and where they're going. They're getting anti-Israel. They're, they, they sound like a bunch of campus protesters most of the time. And honestly, I just need a, you know, he might be our, a jerk, but he's our jerk. And he's effectively beating them back in the only way that apparently seems to work. Now, I, I think that there are other ways to beat back this rabble. I really do, other than the Donald Trump out there. But I also will admit, I don't know if there's another Republican right now who could do it. Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, Mitt Romney. You're going to tell me these guys, these are the guys who would beat back that rabble? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think they would be running scared for them almost as much as anybody else. And so that is a big reason why the number one takeaway from this whole Brett Kavanaugh battle, my friends, is consolidation of President Trump's popularity among the right to center right in this country. His numbers are going to go up. Does this mean that the Republicans will hold on to the House and gain seats in the Senate in the midterms? I don't know. House races are really rough to predict. Uh, I'm looking at a lot of polls that show it looks, still looks like the Democrats have, a, have, a, have an edge there. I wouldn't be shocked if they win the House. I would now be shocked, no, if the, if the Republicans, though, don't pick up one or two seats in the Senate. And we'll see where that kind of a split congressional situation leaves us. But I wouldn't be surprised if either way, if the Democrats or the Republicans win the House or have control of the House in the next Congress. I do think this will help the Republicans' numbers. I really do. Deservedly or not, because some of them have not stood up and pushed back against this Kavanaugh thing as much as they should have. That, that to me, is, is definitely the case. So now I want to get to just, again, one more final point about the Kavanaugh thing and why this was so important and why it was such a big deal in this country. Is Because, again... A number of people brought up a very good point. They said, wait a minute, this is not President Trump's first Supreme Court nomination. He nominated Neil Gorsuch. And even though there was some nasty stuff said about Gorsuch and there were some efforts to try to stop him, don't, don't pretend that that nomination sailed through. It did not sail through. But okay, compared to the Kavanaugh thing, it was a lot easier, for sure. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, Kavanaugh, the only reason why that got nastier is because of those rape allegations, which is not true. It was already way nastier than the Gorsuch thing way before that allegation came out. But the reason why the allegation, the, the pushback on Kavanaugh was stronger was because of abortion. Because Gorsuch was replacing Antonin Scalia, who was a solid right-wing vote every darn time on the court. And so that was really kind of a wash. Brett Kavanaugh is replacing Ant Anthony Kennedy on the court, who was a swing vote. Yeah, about 65% of the time he went conservative, about 35% of the time he went liberal. Actually, it might be a little bit more of a skew towards the right with, with Justice Kennedy. But... He was a swing vote. 
And replacing him with someone who looks like he's going to be a 100% conservative vote every time, that was why the left mobilized so much against Brett Kavanaugh, because there are a lot of people on the left who were worried about some kind of overturning of Roe v. Wade and making abortion either illegal or less legal and all those things. So that's why there was so much hyperbole even before the rape allegations came out. That was why there was so much energy against Brett Kavanaugh that there wasn't against Neil Gorsuch. I want to make two points about that. The first point is, I don't. First point is, I'm going to say I'm not going to tell you what I think about abortion. I can tell you what the what the polls have said for a long, long time. The fact is, is that most Americans don't think abortion is moral. But most Americans also aren't willing to make a big sacrifice politically or go nuts in this country to change the existing laws. But the idea that the left kind of pushes and the mainstream media pushes, uh, you know, in their narrative that most Americans are in favor of a woman's right to choose, it's not true. Okay. Most Americans feel that abortion is not moral almost all the time. Okay. And the latest polls, this is not Rasmussen because Rasmussen has a new polling outfit called ScottRasmussen.com. The latest polling from ScottRasmussen.com confirms this. And I've been studying his polls very closely. But the thing is that really bothers me about abortion in this country is that if the Democrats really believe that, the, you know, as they say, a woman's right to choose and pro-choice movements are so important, they have a funny way of showing it, my friends. They have a real funny way of showing it because they're right. Any kind of fundamental right, if you believe that abortion is a fundamental right or not, but if, but if you do, any fundamental right in this country, which is really in the hands of the courts, can be can be changed. It's pretty scary, if that's what you're thinking of. And for those of you who are big Second Amendment supporters to the, in the right to own a gun, you know what I'm talking about. But there's one way to make that much more secure, and that is if Congress passes a law. If Congress would pass a law saying that the abortion laws in this country as they stand now are the law of the land, and the Congress has passed this law. They can call it the Roe v. Wade Act. They can call it the Women's Choice Act, whatever they want to call it. And it passes Congress. It will become extremely difficult for the courts at any level to overturn it. Not that they don't have the power to do it in the Constitution, but they understand, the courts, that they really don't want to get involved in a situation where the legislatures have made a definitive choice. And for those of you who don't believe me, just look at the Obamacare decision. You had a conservative chief justice of the United States in John Roberts, who basically refused to overturn Obamacare. And why did he refuse to overturn it? And I'm not talking, don't look in his decision for it because you won't find it in the, in the pages of a decision. The truth is that even though there was a lot of chicanery and backroom deals and all kinds of funny stuff that went on in the passing of the Obamacare law in the House and the Senate in 2010, it did pass the Congress and it was signed by President Obama. And the Supreme Court of the United States is loath to overturn laws that are passed in that way. They just won't do it unless it's really, really, they really have ex much stronger compelling reasons. They won't do it. They don't want to do it. And I get, I get it. They don't want to look like they're taking over the legislature. It's important to them. So my question, folks, for those of you who support abortion, in all the years that the Democrats have controlled Congress since Roe v. Wade you know, was, was, was decided in 1973, and you're talking about most of the years since 1973. And by the way, the year after 1973, the Democrats had the, the biggest supermajority in Congress that you could ever have because of Watergate. My question is, why the heck haven't the Democrats ever tried to pass an abortion law in Congress to solidify abortion rights and keep it out of the courts and so we don't have to have this game every couple of years when a, when a vacancy begins? And the answer is politics. The Democratic elected leaders know darn well that nothing raises money for them and gets people as excited as saying to their public, to their voters, hey, Roe v. Wade might get overturned. And they are loath to give that up. They want money. 
They want that support. They want people out in the streets for them. And they believe that women will vote for them only if, only if, there's that threat hanging over them all the time. So if you're a pro-abortion guy, a pro-abortion woman, or pro-choice, whatever you want to call it, and you're upset about the Supreme Court thing, you're looking at the wrong place. Look at your Democratic leaders. Ask Senator Schumer, ask Harry Reid when he was the majority leader, how come you didn't bring up something when you had a supermajority in Congress and could have gotten it passed? How come you didn't do it? You won't get an honest answer, but that's the question that you have to ask. My friends, this has been a very illuminating few weeks. We've learned a lot about America in the last several weeks. We are very much at odds in this country. But I really believe that, judging by what happened with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, that most of this country, even if it's a small majority, most of this country has decided that we believe in our constitutional protections. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in fairness. We believe in a society where random accusations without evidence cannot, cannot be rewarded. And I would hope that some people on the left will understand that if they really do care about abortion, they need to do what it, they need to, they need to get elected leaders who are stopping, who will stop manipulating them and start and stop playing these courtroom games and confirmation games and start trying to pass laws. I don't think it's going to happen because it's just too easy for them to make it a crisis every couple of years. But that's what we've learned in America in the last few weeks. I hope that we can learn lessons from much more pleasurable situations in the coming weeks. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now. I'll speak to you again next week.